0: Are you concerned with the direction of the public education system? Are you wondering what you can do to preserve your child's heart and mind? Have you thought about homeschooling but have fears about whether it would work for you? Join us for our Home Education Conference on Saturday, August 13th, hosted by Victory Bible Church in Hamilton. Find answers to the questions should you, would you, could you? Speak with those who have, with those who are, and with those who were home educated. Hear their success stories, identify challenges, and learn how to overcome them. Investigate for yourself what an education from a biblical worldview looks like. The Home Education Conference will be held. Held at Victory Bible Church in Hamilton, New Jersey on Saturday, August 13th. Doors open at 7.30 a.m. and the conference will end around 4 p.m. The cost is only $10 per person or $20 per family. Table registrations are available for those wanting to sell used curriculum and or cottage business. For more information, visit vbchamilton.org. That's vbchamilton.org.
1: Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 316 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I am your host Melba Toast. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hello, ladies, and welcome back to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. I am so happy you have decided to listen in. Of course, if you are new, welcome. If this is your first listen to this podcast, we have been looking at the very popular women's conference, The Gift Gathering. More specifically, we have been going over the sessions at the 2020 conference to look at the way the speakers handle scripture. Jenny Allen, the founder and vision counselor of the IF Women's Ministry, set up that year's conference to be centered on Romans 8 with the intent of giving the audience more of Jesus. Jenny Allen rightly proclaimed that Romans 8 is an extremely theological passage. And when it's handled correctly, is a beautiful chapter to dive into to not only find Christ, but learn about the absolute sovereignty over and keeping of God's people in salvation and the help and power of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Today's uh, session is a message given by Sadie Robertson Huff on verse Romans 8, 39, The very last verse of the chapter. Of course, it's not even a full sentence, but half a sentence. And whether that is on purpose, I guess we'll have to find out. But before we get into Miss Robertson Huff's message, let's look at the verse in context. If you have been following this series from the start, you will pretty much have a good idea of what Paul is trying to teach the early church in Romans chapter 8. And that's because we have looked at this chapter in each episode <laughs> covering the F-2020 conference. So we know that Paul, in the previous seven chapters, was presenting his argument for why the gospel was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That was Romans one sixteen, By first laying out the problem that every human being born of Adam is born with the nature to sin and that those with this sin nature are destined for wrath for God will judge all men Romans 1 28 to 211 Paul clearly argues that neither Jew nor Greek circumcised or uncircumcised will be exempt from this judgment even men who are not given the law as the Israelites were given yet do what the law requires, shows that the work of the law is written on their hearts, Romans 212 12-16. All men will be judged by this law, and even more so those who were given the law. Paul spends chapters 3-5 to arguing for the truth that no man is righteous and all men are under sin, Romans 3, 9-20. That only by faith in Jesus Christ are we counted righteous romans three twenty one to twenty six that faith was always the way sinners were justified, all of Romans chapter four, that by this faith we have peace and reconciliation with God and have grace and life in Christ Jesus through his active obedience, Romans five in chapters six and seven, Paul then appe- appeals to Romans. To understand that because of their faith in the work of Christ, they are dead to sin and alive to God. To walk in newness of life, slaves to righteousness. And because they are set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit they receive leads to sanctification and eternal life. Christ, who has fulfilled the law perfectly for us, has now become our husband The law being our old husband who was put to death so that we may now serve him in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Towards the end of chapter 7, Paul informs the readers that the law is not sin but exposes our sinful nature. It is the means by which God reveals how we are not righteous, how we will be judged, exposing how there is no good dwelling in our flesh. By the law, we see how we do not love God and neighbor. And in this knowledge, we are brought to a desperate cry for God to show mercy. And then Paul writes the beautiful truths that are in Romans 8, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he did what the flesh could not do and condemned sin in his flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans eight one to four. He urges and encourages those of us who are in the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh, because we are God's children. And though we suffer and are subjected to the sinful world, we long in the spirit to be set free from it and our flesh. And God who is faithful will one day set us free from corruption and bring us to Himself as adopted sons and daughters. Until then. The Spirit intercedes for us, knowing the mind of God, and works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. We are secure in this hope because it is all God's doing, all his work, all for his glory. He predestined us in eternity past to be conformed to the image of his Son, and those whom he predestined he calls, and those whom he calls he justifies, and those whom he justifies. He glorifies. Now this is where we will read the text starting at verse thirty one. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, now this is Sadie's verse, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is presenting to the church the undeniable set-in-stone argument for our hope, and that is God himself. That God who did not even spare his own son to save the people that he foreknew will not spare or allow anything to ever separate us from his love. I mean, just think about this, ladies. I have a son, a son I love very, very much. Would I sacrifice him to save somebody else's child? And not just anyone's child, but my enemy's child, or even my enemy himself? Would you? We are talking about a love here that we struggle in our sinful nature to comprehend and grasp. And yet the love is not the only point of Paul's argument, though it is the strongest. Within this argument is the nature and power of God himself. That while God in his great love sacrificed his son for us, there is also God's great power. That same power that creates and sustains all things. Proverbs 16.4, Acts 17.28, Colossians 1.17, Hebrews 1.3. This power was at work in predestining you and me to hear and receive the gospel, to be given faith to believe, to work in you, to sanctify you, and make you holy. And that same power... That raised Jesus from the dead will raise you to glory in new bodies without decay and corruption. That is how Paul can say that we are more than conquerors and that nothing can separate us from the perfect, right, true, powerful love of God through Christ Jesus. This verse at the end of chapter 8 is meant to bring us to an understanding of God's work in the salvation of his people and the keeping of them for all of this life and into eternity. There is no more comforting, empowering truths than these for the church of God. And it should trouble us greatly if someone mishandles this text and wants to make it about something else. Why should it trouble us if one doesn't teach this from the passage? Well, because one, we are sinners weak in our flesh and faith. We continually need to be reminded that our salvation was was God's work. We need to be reminded so that we give God the glory that he so rightly deserves. And two, we need to understand this because with the salvation given to us by faith in the gospel comes a hope. The hope of being with Christ set free from our flesh And reigning with him in an incorruptible new heavens and new earth. This hope reminds us that we are not alone in our temptations and trials. Jesus too was tempted and yet is without sin. We who are tempted and have fallen into sin have a high priest who understands yet intercedes for us. Hebrews 4.15 And 3. We need to understand this because this hope is in what we cannot see yet, but is made assured by the work that God already has done the gospel. This hope always reminds us of who our faith is in Christ. So, is this where Sadie Robertson Huff will go in her message? Let's dive in and find out. Miss Robertson Huff starts. Her message with what she calls a church moment. By this, she means a sharing of what God is doing within the church. She tells a story of how she had visited some colleges and was very encouraged by how the young college students would, quote, stand up on their feet saying, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. I don't care what it's going to look like tomorrow. I don't care what my passes look like. I'm saying yes to Jesus because he changes everything. End quote, and that these young people just cannot contain themselves worshipping. Her purpose in stating this is to encourage people to know that God is moving within the colleges and in the younger generation. She then prays before getting into her message, asking God to use her message to inspire the women there to take revival back with them to the places that these women are going Now, normally, I wouldn't play clips of prayers within a message, but her prayer here reveals something about Scripture, about the Word of God itself, or her belief therein. And I think it's an underlying belief that a lot of popular Christian speakers may have. In fact, I think that's what a lot of the typical evangelical Christians believe about revival and conferences in general. So I'm going to play the
2: clip and explain. God, I thank you so much. You're so good. You're so big. You're so holy. And we are just in awe that we get to stand here with breath in our lungs because you gave us life, God. I thank you so much for every woman that got to IF this weekend and is watching online. And Lord, I pray that this would not this would not just fall away. God, that it would land on good soil, every word that was spoken. That they would take this and that it would begin to revive their hearts and bring revival back with them to the places they are going. God, I pray that this would be something that changes them from the inside out. That it would rejuvenate them. It would bring a fresh life, new life, because that is what you do and that is who your spirit is. So, God, I pray over this word. Would you anoint me to be able to speak this word to your beautiful daughters, God? God, give me words, give me wisdom. And in your name, we pray, Amen. Okay.
1: So, when we pray, we're coming to God, asking Him for certain specific things. And in this case, Sadie is asking that God use her message to, quote, revive their hearts and bring revival back with them to the places where they are going. That her message would be something that would change these women from the inside out, bringing new life because that is what God does, and it is who his spirit is. Well, here's the problem. She believes that these things can be accomplished through her words and message. I, on the other hand, believe these things are accomplished through the words of God and the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Those all being found in scripture and scripture alone. What you believe about the means that God uses to bring revival is how you determine the method of encouraging revival or new life. If one believes that it is God's words that affect change, then when delivering a message, one will want to use God's words. Expound on God's word and teach God's word to bring about change. This is what is called the efficacy of scripture, that the scripture not only has authority, is not only without error, that it is not only sufficient, but that it has power. But if you believe God uses your words and influence to encourage and change women from the inside out, then those are the words you will use in your message You will use your personal ideas, your philosophies, your experiences, lessons you have learned, etc., to bring what you believe will be life to your hearers. And I truly believe that most of the popular female speakers within the Evangelical Women's Ministry of Today actually believe that God uses these things to bring revival. Now, I truly believe that this comes from the belief that we help people choose to follow Christ with our testimonies. And the thing is, they would be right if true revival came as a result of seeing how others gave their lives to Christ. If the good news was that Jesus can make your life have purpose and the testimony of Christ was about how he changed your life. Don't get me wrong, these things are not bad. They are not the message that changes hearts. They are fruits of a changed heart. We behave as though these fruits are the message that people need to hear. And usually that's because we like to talk about ourselves. This is the God has changed my life and given me purpose and he can for you type of evangelism. But the message that people need to hear, that is, the power of God unto salvation, is the life, words, and death of someone else. True revival does not come from acknowledging the blessings and fruits that come from a changed life or from finding purpose. True revival comes from the acknowledgement of our sin the crying out for a savior, and the pure dependence on and faith in Christ and his word. I recently read a wonderful book by Jonathan Edwards titled, The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God. In it, Mr. Edwards lays out for us how to differentiate between real revival and false revival. I have to do an episode to talk about this in the future because it seems to me that this type of talk Of revival is common and even growing within the evangelical sphere as we see many examples of this type of talk within the if gathering but what I'm trying to explain here is how this belief that God will use our stories and experiences to change hearts and bring new life is really the material they use to build up their audience but if it's not the Word of God then it will not stand up to the fiery trial Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15 expounds upon this. According to the grace of God given to Paul, like a skilled master builder, he laid a foundation, that's Paul laid a foundation, and someone else is building up on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The church is God's field, God's building. Sadie, by being a teacher, is participating in watering that field or building on a foundation. And either she is building the audience up with the firm materials of God's word, or she is building with weak materials, such as her own words, her own knowledge and experience. The same goes for all the speakers at this conference. And that is the perfect thing to keep in the back of our minds as we go through her message. Let's determine what she is using to build us up. Now, she presents the starting point of her pa- her message on a story in John 21 of a conversation between Jesus and Peter. She talks a bit about how close Peter and Jesus were. How wherever Jesus went, Peter wanted to be with him how Peter and Jesus were best friends, and how bold Peter was in regards to Jesus. Yet when Jesus was arrested, Peter turned away from Christ in fear. She then goes into the setting of the John 21 passage and the breakfast with Jesus after the resurrection that happens around a charcoal fire.
2: Jesus, you know, goes on to die on the cross. And then he's resurrected from the grave. And where does Jesus go? Jesus goes back to the Sea of Galilee and has breakfast with Peter. And I just think that's so cool. First of all, that Jesus like, wanted to have breakfast. I think that's awesome. And he was like, hey, guys, like, let's have breakfast. That's just, you just rose from the grave. Like, that's amazing. And so they're about to cook some fish. And it's really crazy what happens. They're about to have breakfast around a charcoal fire. Now that's really important because Peter denied Jesus three times at a charcoal fire. And now they're sitting here after the resurrection about to have breakfast and it's a charcoal fire. And I always make that point really strongly because I think that happens a lot of times. You get in the presence of Jesus and all you can really think about is your past. You're like, oh wait, I'm here, I'm with Jesus, I'm at at this conference, I'm at church, but I can't stop thinking about what I just did, what I just walked through, what I'm coming from. Okay, hold on a
1: second. So, from the historical fact that there was a fire in one of the times that Peter denied Christ, and then there was a fire when Jesus was cooking fish, she gets that we so often think of our past when we are in the presence of Jesus First of all, both fires are not identified as charcoal. In the recording of the Gospels of Peter's denials, there is only the one description of a fire, or a telling that Peter was warming himself, which we would assume he was warmed by a fire, but we don't know what kind. And while there was a time that Peter denies Christ while warming himself near a fire, there are still two other instances of denial that don't talk of fires being nearby. So why she emphasizes that, I do not know, other than to make her spiritual point. It wasn't important to the writers of the Gospels, or they would have included it. What was important and what is important is what Christ says and does in this passage. He restores Peter. Now, Miss Robertson Huff goes into this, talks about how Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. But I'm curious at this point what this has to do with Romans 8, verse 39. She talks about how she had recently given this message in which she relayed how in the text, after being restored and told about his mission and his death, the next thing we see Peter doing is miraculous works by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that she was wrong. There is one instance right after his res- uh, his restoration that we see him mentioned
2: again. The next time we see something that happens with Peter is actually the next verse. I don't know how i missed miss that. Because this verse just didn't really catch me. In the moment when I was reading it for passion, but it really caught me when I was reading it again. Isn't that funny how that can happen? You can read the same story a hundred times and it's a hundred and one that you're like, wow. So after this amazing redeeming moment between Jesus and Peter, do you love me? Yes. You love me? Yes. Here's your purpose. Then he kind of talks about the death. He's going to have to die. But he's like, hey, just keep following me. Verse 20, right after that moment, it says, Peter turned. Peter turned around. Simple. It's not a big deal. He just turned. He just turned. He having breakfast and he turned. But it is a big deal. Because he turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John it's kind of funny because John wrote the book of John and just referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. So he's that guy. Um, it's okay. And then he goes on to just make another point about himself. Oh, also the one who leaned up against him at supper. <laughs> like John, John's also really close to Jesus. John also made a point to make sure we knew that he beat Peter to the grave. So they have a little brotherly competition, I'm sure. And Peter, in this amazing, epic moment with Jesus, right after that, as they're on the way back to the other brothers, Peter turns around and he looks at John. And he says to Jesus, he said, hey, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Okay. This
1: is interesting, yes. Why would Peter ask about John? Yeah, I'm sure the answer is an interesting one, but what does it have to do with From Z? I guess we will keep going.
2: And that got me the other day. Because here he is, Jesus is doing a work in him, he's moving through him, he's redeeming things in his life, he's talking to him about personal things. And right in this moment, after this epic moment, he turns around and gets so distracted by what Jesus might be doing in John's life, that he actually misses it. He misses what Jesus is doing in his life. Now how do I know that? I don't know what happened. Look at the next verse. It says, then the saying spread among the brothers. Now, this is what made me laugh. Literally, a rumor spread in the Bible, just like rumor spread today. And listen to what happened. They had to clear up a rumor. It says, the disciple, it spread among the brothers that this disciple was not going to die. Yet, Jesus did not say to him that he wasn't going to die. But, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? It's like, I didn't say that. He didn't say that. You missed it. You missed it. And besides, why is is that what we're talking about? Why are we talking about what might happen in John's life instead of talking about what just happened in your own life with what Jesus is doing in your heart?
1: So John mentions this in his writings to clarify a rumor. Sadie seems to imply that... Paul spread, because he focused on what Jesus is doing in John's life instead of looking at what Jesus is doing in his own life. This is the point and issue she wants to address in her message.
2: What are we missing that God is wanting to do right now because we're turning and looking at what he's doing in everybody else's life?
1: All right, ladies. She has one been inserting into the text things that are not there, drawing conclusions based on these insertions, and nowhere does it describe Peter as missing what God is doing in his life because he turned to focus on the Apostle John. Peter is literally turning his body to point to John. There is no spiritual meaning in the word Turn here. And Peter's literal turning of his body did not cause Peter to miss out on anything. I mean, come on. The whole point of Romans 8 31 to 39, which includes her verse, is about how we will be conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 29, and nothing will keep that from happening because God's power and Christ's love will accomplish it. Not even our turning to focus on what God is doing in someone else's life. Again, just this idea that God is dependent on us to do his will. Two, she will now take a historical context And try to draw out a spiritual problem from them from which she will give us her solution or advice to fix the said problem. Listen in.
2: Now that turn might look different for everybody. That turn might literally be looking at another person and comparing what their outcome has been versus yours, what their life has been versus yours. Maybe it's turning to Instagram. Maybe it's. Turning in the wrong direction. Maybe it's turning to the past. What is that turn that you're getting so distracted by that you're missing? Wow, God, you have me in this space. You're speaking something to my heart. You're redeeming all that was lost. You're covering everything from the past. You're building my testimony. What are we missing in that moment?
1: So the spiritual problem she wants to warn us of is not to turn and focus on what God is doing in others, but instead to focus on what God is doing in our lives and understand that God is building our testimony. By turning, we may miss out. What might we miss out on? Giving our testimony to others because in our testimony, there is power. Because
2: the words says there is power in our testimony. Those words, those words, the testimony, what Jesus does in us, that's going to bring the dead to life. That's going to bring the lost to found. It says even in the Bible that sometimes Jesus would leave a town and more people would get to know him because of the stories and the testimonies that the people would tell. And so I say that to say, when we're going back from if, when we're going back from different places we've been to, when we're going back from a moment with Jesus, are we so distracted by what we turn to in the meantime to share what God did in that moment? I don't want to miss that moment, God.
1: Okay, do you see the connection between what she's claiming here and what I mentioned about in her prayer She truly believes that her experiences are what bring new life to people, that her testimony converts people. And she believes that our testimonies do the same thing. So let's set the record straight here. Let's ask if her claim is true. Does scripture claim that our testimonies have this type of power? What she clearly means by testimony is in direct relation to her story of the conversation between Peter and Jesus. So remember, in this passage, Jesus is restoring Peter, calling him to the apostleship, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, etc., and prophesying to Peter what kind of death he was to glorify God, verse 19 of John chapter 21. So by testimony, she means what God is doing in the life of an individual. What he has called them to, and how God is glorified in their life experiences or providential appointments as seen in Peter's death. So, to answer this question, I looked up all the passages that talked about testimonies, testifying, and even declaring. Most were describing God declaring or prophets declaring for God. But I wanted to find testimony or testifying of God's work in an individual life being used to bring salvation. Specifically, I wanted to see if scripture claims what she claims, that testifying of God's work in our lives has power to bring the dead to life. First, we need to make it very plain that what she means by bringing the dead to life is spiritual death to spiritual life. Being dead in our trespasses and sins and raised to new life is our salvation. Second, we need to see what it is that brings about this salvation. And finally, from that, we can determine if testifying to others of what God is doing or has done in our lives is how salvation is brought about. I'm going to look at two passages that talk about being dead spiritually and raised to new life in Christ. Let's look at... At Colossians 2 8 14, first. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the reward of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. From this passage, we can glean that it is through faith in the powerful working of God that God uses to make us alive with Christ. By this faith, God forgives us all our trespasses, by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand, he set these aside, nailing them to the cross. So, two things to note here that by faith we are saved, and that this faith is in direct connection to Christ, the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. Keep this in mind. Now, the second passage we're going to look at is Ephesians 2 8. faith. There's three things to note in this passage. One, that it is by grace that we are saved, as it clearly says in verse 5. Two, that the grace of this salvation is through our faith. And three, that again, we are made alive with Christ. In reference to Christ's resurrection, as Paul mentions in his prayer right before this passage in verse 19 and 20, by which he prays that the Ephesians know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So now we know that the raising of the dead to newness of life is our salvation and that it is a gift of grace by God through our faith. We are saved by grace through faith. But faith in what? Faith in the testimony of God's work in an individual life? We can see from these two passages that the faith is connected to Christ, the cross his burial, and his resurrection. And notice that Paul calls these works of Christ a powerful working of God. Yep. Paul is describing the gospel in these passages, and he solidifies this by claiming in Romans 1.16 that it is the gospel That is the power of God unto salvation, not our testimonies, but the testimony or declaration of Christ dying on the cross for our sins and being raised for our justification. Now, she uses historical accounts found in the Gospels as examples of, quote, people getting close to Jesus because of others declaring to them the healing and miraculous work he did for them. But they do not describe these people as becoming disciples, nor as being saved. You have to understand, Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. He hadn't died, and he hadn't been raised to life three days later. We see that though many followed Jesus after hearing about the miracles he did for others, once he started proclaiming that he would die, and especially when he stated that the bread he would give to the world would be his flesh, and that one must feed on his flesh and drink his blood to receive eternal life, we see in John 6:66, 6, after stating this hard truth, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as well? So while people came close to him by hearing and seeing the miracles he did, they departed from him because of the words he said, the teachings he taught, and the gospel he proclaimed to them. It's the same today. We can talk about all the good things God is doing in our lives, how he brought us out of slavery to sin or healed us in some way or gave us some purpose. And these are good to talk about. The scriptures often talk about declaring to others the wonderful works of the Lord. Psalm 22, 22, 35, Daniel 4, 2, among many others. But there is only one testimony that brings salvation. And that is the testimony that the Helper, the Holy Spirit testifies of, who testifies on Christ's behalf. John 15, 26 to 27. The testimony given by the apostles, the same testimony laid out for us in First John one verses one to ten. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which you, we have seen with our And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is a message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the testimony that has power. The testimony that saves is the proclamation that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Okay, I know that was a lot there, but it was necessary. So, let's move on. Miss Robertson Huff goes on to say that both Peter and John got it. They didn't focus on what God was doing in other people's lives, but what he was doing in theirs, and went on to write the epistles. And it was because they both took their eyes off each other and started following Christ. But what is it to us that their life looks like that, she
2: asked. I don't want to miss that moment. I want to hear what you're saying to me. I want to get it. And clearly Peter got it because he went on to live an amazing ministry. And here's the thing. So did John. Peter wrote a few books and so did John. And they both did it because they both individually took their eyes off each other and started following Jesus. What is it to you? What is it to you that they got that? That their life looks like that? That this is happening for them? God, I'm going to follow you because you said follow you. I'm going to follow you because I know you have a plan for my life. I'm going to follow you because I trust you. I'm going to follow you because I want your will to be done over my own. It doesn't matter what it looks like in anybody else's life. I don't want to miss it.
1: Now, I'm not sure if that last part was her implying that that should be why we are following Jesus, or if it is actually her talking to Jesus saying that is why she follows him. I imagine it's a bit of both. But regardless, notice what is missing from that. Yes, we want to follow God, because he said to. Yes. We follow him because he has a plan. And yes, because we should want to do his will. But we also follow for the same reasons the disciples stayed with him when all the others left. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Who else has the solution to our sin problem? Who else gives righteousness and eternal life? Who else reconciled us to God? I'm curious. Sadie says she doesn't want to miss it, and by that she means following Jesus, her purpose, and God's will for her life. But what about these other things? She continues, and talks about the, quote, good word that Bianca Olsoff presented in Romans eight thirty one to 39 and relates how, just like for Paul, nothing could separate Peter from the love of Christ. And though nothing could separate Peter from Christ's love, who might be distracting us from Christ's love?
2: Who's so separate us from the love of Christ? Because in this moment... Really, nothing could separate Peter from the love of Christ. Jesus raised from the grave. He went to the Sea of Galilee. He cooked breakfast for Peter. He was talking to Peter, affirming the love, affirming the love, affirming the love. But then Peter said, what about John? Who, who is it? Who is it that really can't separate you from God's love? Because God's going to love you no matter what. But who's going to distract you from God's great love? That's sitting right in front of you. That's chasing after you recklessly. Who, what is going to distract you from that?
1: Back to this problem she's set up for us. That we get distracted by other people. Specifically, that we are distracted by the work of God in other people's lives. This is just really ridiculous. Nowhere, and I mean nowhere, are we warned to not let the work that God is doing in other people's lives distract us from the love of Christ. And this is most certainly not what Paul is trying to warn us of in Romans eight thirty one to thirty nine. I'm sorry, but I don't think looking at the work God is doing in other people's lives is a problem. And that I think it's actually encouraged. We see all throughout the Old and New Testament God telling us to observe or meditate on the works he did in Abraham's life, the works he did in Moses's life, David's life, Esther's life, etc. and etc. For their stories were written down for this very reason. Observing the works of God in anyone's life is not a distraction but his edification to our souls and gives us license to praise him for what he has done. Paul is also not trying to point us to the reckless love of Christ either. I don't think Paul would ever describe Christ's love as reckless. Reckless means without thinking or caring about the consequences of an action. In fact, in Romans, we see that the love and work of God through Christ was very intentional, planned from eternity past. They were the intended act of love, and that everything we go through was predestined, or you could say planned, with the express intention of conforming us to the image of Christ. Christ's love and God's work in our salvation are the exact opposite of reckless. Christ's love is not reckless is almost the exact point Paul is trying to express. Because it is so planned and intentional and not reckless, our salvation is secure. But Sadie continues. She begins to talk about how her now husband pursued her before they were married. That it was so beautiful, intentional, and godly. I won't play that clip because of time, but I found this very ironic to say the least. How her husband's pursuit of her was intentional and is mentioned next to godly. Yet, Jesus' love is reckless. But I digress. She talks about how when they were dating, she would investigate his Instagram and compare herself to other women he would be pictured with. And complain to him that she's just not good enough. How sometime in her past, someone had told her how the boy she was dating was out of her league. And how she had sabotaged other relationships with this type of thinking. And just like she did this to her husband, she thinks we do that with God.
2: I just feel like I'm not good enough, and so he's standing here willing to give me this love, willing to give me this relationship, pursuing me, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to be able to take that because I don't look like this other person. And I think so many times we do that with God. He's sitting here having this conversation with us. He's like, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because he loves you. The question is not flipped. Sometimes we wonder, like, does he love me? No, he's asking, do you love him? He's chasing after you. He's pursuing with you. He's having breakfast with you. He's always with you. And he loves you, willing to give everything for you. He calls you his own. He calls you his beloved. And then we sit here, and because we look around and we don't think we fit the mold, or we don't think we're good enough, our life is going well enough, we just say, it's okay, uh, I, I just don't think I'm good enough for that love. And all the love is there, but we just can't receive it.
1: She sets us up like we shouldn't believe when it comes to Christ's love that we aren't good enough. But scripture says that this is true. We are not good enough. That is the entire point that Paul has been arguing for in Romans chapter 1 to 7. We aren't good enough. Our sinful nature prevents us from being good and the law exposes that about us. We may even have the desire to be good, but our flesh keeps us from it. The solution is not to be convinced that we are good enough for God's love. But acknowledge we are not and trust in the love of God worked out through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ so that the Holy Spirit may work in us, helping us put to death the deeds of the flesh, putting to death our sin, and walking in the Spirit. Romans 8, 1-28 She then goes on to list reasons why we don't believe we are good enough to be loved.
2: Maybe it's because we're distracted. Maybe it's because we're comparing ourselves. Maybe it's because we're comparing our story. Maybe it's because of a lie spoken over us years ago. But in this conference today, I don't want us to run away from the love he's running after us with. I don't want us to turn around and look at another person or walk away and get distracted from what he's doing in your heart right now. With this reckless love. And so I want to pray over us. I want to pray over us that we don't get distracted. I want to pray over us that we're not turning to other things to satisfy our heart. I want to pray over us that the lives from the past aren't still meditating here in the the present so that we're not able to receive the love that he's giving us. And in this moment, I just want us to go there for a minute. Before we close out conference, before this day is over, so that when you walk away, you walk away and you follow Jesus and follow that pursuit and that love and just let it happen. And that's
1: it for her message. She goes on to pray and thank God that He is chasing after them with reckless love, making it the third time in this message that she identifies God's love as reckless. She prays that they rest in the knowledge that Christ died on the cross for their sins, quoting John 3.16. And this is the only reference to the expression of God's love through Jesus Christ. What did any of that have to do with Romans 8.39 or even Romans 8 in general? Instead of even addressing the verse, she merely states that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, focuses on drawing in a spiritual problem from a historical recording of a conversation between Peter and Jesus, and has no biblical support for that spiritual problem, nor any support for dealing with the problem. But we are taught to not focus on the work of God in others, so we are not distracted, and just know we are enough to be loved, and that nothing can separate us from the reckless love of God. What did you think, ladies? How well did Sadie Robertson Huff handle the text, or even handle John 21? What do you think about this way of describing God's love as reckless? And what do you think about our testimonies? Do you believe that they have the power to raise the dead to life? Email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com and tell me what you think. Before I end this program, I just want to present my conclusion to this third part of the series in the If Gathering. We've spent seven episodes looking at the 2020 conference to assess the way these speakers handle scripture, how they handle Romans chapter 8. I hope I have clearly shown how they have twisted scripture at times, changed meanings to words, took historical texts and tried to make it prescriptive of spiritual issues, twisted passages to imply that they are talking about what they want to talk about. There was a lot of talk about problems we should be addressing, such as fighting off negative thoughts, as Jenny Allen taught. We should be treasuring the spirit that lives within us so that our lives look supernatural, as Beth Moore taught. We are not to be controlled by fear that causes us to be perfectionist, controlling, compare ourselves with others, produce unhealthy competition, etc., and to accept our adoption and open our inheritance to accomplish our callings, as Joe Saxton taught. We are not to count our resources when we question our callings, but count on Jesus and just be faithful where we are, as Ruth Chow Simmons taught. We are to be on guard by knowing that we possess a power within us and that we are more than conquerors through Christ as Bianca Juarez Olsoff taught. We are not to turn inward but become wayfinders by turning and being found by the waymaker as Anne Voskamp taught. And as shown in this episode of part 3, we are not to turn and get distracted by observing the work of God in others' lives. That's quite a bit of work to work on. Now, no mention if any of these are sinful things to do. And I really hope I've shown that these issues are not talked about in Romans 8. But in fact, I hope I've shown that Romans 8 is all about God's work. Our putting to death the deeds of the flesh, our weakness and the Spirit's strength, God's selecting and keeping of us unto salvation, and the conforming of his people to Christ, our sanctification, and in the end, our glorification. This chapter, except for the instruction to put to death the deeds of the flesh, which is still done in the Spirit, isn't really instructing us, but... Bringing to our knowledge the power of God and his keeping and working in us all the way to the end through the love and work of Christ so that our faith in God will grow. What a better message. Why wouldn't they want to encourage these women up into this message? Jenny Allen stated how she didn't think there was a more theological chapter in the Bible and that we could get a lot of Jesus with her hope that we left the conference loving him more. Can she honestly say that these messages gave that very rich theology that we find in the chapter? Could she really say that Christ was really proclaimed? Did this conference deliver what she promised? I don't think so. Want to know what theology can be gleaned from this text? Want to hear what a message that draws out Christ from this text would sound like? Listen to the sermon series on this chapter given by Martin Lloyd-Jones. You will be edified greatly and in this series, knowing God, relying on the Spirit, and loving Christ more. I will provide a link to the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust website where you can simply type in Romans chapter 8 in the search box and listen to all his wonderful sermons. So ladies, until next time, I pray you have been blessed to dive into Romans 8 and have seen the difference between what it says and what these speakers claim it is about. I pray that through these episodes you've been exposed to the way speakers can twist scripture or neglect it learning for yourself how to compare what one says to scripture. In fact, in the final episode of part three, I will have a special guest on to help us learn how to handle scripture correctly and how to study it for ourselves. You can look forward to that. I pray that you trust that in him, Possession of it to the praise of his glory Ephesians one eleven to fourteen. I pray you are in his word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to TTEW dot org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com Again, the website address is ttew.org Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian Podcast Community. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me, as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.